0: Today's sermon text will be Judges 17, verses 1 through 13, chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, and verses 27 through 31. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord, and he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, And I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know the Lord will prosper me, because I was half a Levite as priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel has fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtael, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Verse 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. And so they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh.
1: Oprah Winfrey, uh, in accepting a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Golden Globes in 2018, she had these words to share. She says, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we have. Let me say that again. She says, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we have. It really speaks to, uh, it's a good commentary on the nature of our culture, uh, where, where, you know, kind of the, the privilege of the ordinary person is to determine what is right and what is wrong. This personal autonomy that we have to determine what is true and what is false is is a virtue. That's our culture, and it really speaks to the issues of our text as well you know we're in the last part of judges this is the third section now you have an introduction with two parts you have these 12 judges spread through chapters 3 to 16 and then you have this epilogue 17 to 21 now an epilog these final five chapters are not a postscript they're not this is what happened after samson uh, samson was the last judge and in his death he delivered israel but then that's the end of the period of the judges. After the period of the judges comes the period of the kings or the monarchy. You have first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second chronicles. Uh, this epilogue is, is speaking about the times in the period of the judges. So I'm reading a biography now on J. A. a. Packer, and, and it goes through his whole life. And then it has all these kind of chapters at the end which speak to more clearly and precisely on what's happening through his life that's what's happening here these five chapters probably occurred early in the period of the judges but what they do is they give us a snapshot a good read on what the times were like it it gives us a picture you know we kept reading and they did evil in the sight of the lord that's all we heard there is never much description to the evil. These stories show us the nature of that evil. Now, <clears throat> there's two stories in 17 and 18. There's one, and there is two in 18 to 20 or uh, 19 to 21. And they're really two stories, and they work together. The first today, we look at the religious and the spiritual chaos in which the people existed. The next week, we'll look at the moral chaos that. Naturally comes out of spiritual chaos. So if you've lost your way with God, then you're going to lose your way in morality, and we're going to see these two work together. But today, it's about this spiritual chaos. In other words, it's kind of if you want to know what a religious life looks like without God, this is the book for you. These are the chapters for you. Now, how are we going to look at these two chapters together? Well, I want to look through the characters. There's Micah. He's uh, from Ephraim. There's a Levite from Judah. And then there's these, the members of Dan, the tribe of Dan. So there's, there's an Ephraimite. There is a Levite. And there is a bunch of Danites. So maybe that will help you remember what we're doing here. But, but we're going to look at tough ground. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to look at, I, I was really excited about that one. I thought, I thought you don't make this stuff up. But anyway, so we're going to look at the, the chapters through these three characters. So look with me at Micah, and what we're doing is we're looking at what's homemade religion about. You know, what, what does it mean that we're going to be religious, but we're going to do our own thing? So, so it's kind of a picture of that. So look with me back at verse 1, because he's telling us a story. In seventeen one, he says, There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. That's the way a lot of novels start out. There was once a man, and he goes on. Look what he says. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and spoken, my ears, behold, the silver was with me. I took it. His mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord for my hand for my son to make a carved and mental image. Now, therefore, I restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, gave it to the silversmith, and made it into a carved image, and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man of Micah had a shrine, and he had an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became priest. Okay, this is cla- I mean, what, what a family. I mean, this could be on a Jerry Springer show if it was back a few years ago. It could be a, some Dr. Phil episode. I, I mean, this is classic. You, you, who is this guy? I, I, I mean, you think he's nice, kind of, but you're not sure. You think he seems pious, but you're not sure. But the guy's a thief. He, he stole 1,100 pieces of silver. We found out from last week that's a lot of money. And not only did he steal love it, but he stole from his mother. And then when he returns it, he return, he confesses it and returns it. We think, well, that's kind of a move towards godliness, right? But there's no repentance. There's no desire for reconciliation. It seems to be motivated out of fear that somehow he's superstitious enough to believe that this curse is going to come upon him if he spends the money. Better not spend the money, I'll invoke the curse. So give the money back. And then you got mom. What's mom about? Mom's calling down the name Yahweh, she's addressing God by his personal name, and yet here she doesn't, she doesn't ask, like, why'd you do what you did? She exercises no parental responsibility, she just blesses the Lord, and then it just it gets uglier, because then she says, I dedicated all to the Lord. But she only gave 200 away. Where is the other 900? Well, it went right into her pocket. You see this making then a shrine, this silver shrine. We're not sure exactly what it is. But you look at this family and it's like, what's going on? They make the shrine. They put it in the household shrine. They put it among the household gods. They look devout. They look pious. But they're just running roughshod over God's revealed purposes and will. I mean, think about it. They, they violate the second command to not make any graven image by making, they violate the second command in having household gods. They violate Levitical law that you're not supposed to have a priest outside the line of Aaron. He's a Levite, so he's of the tribe of Levi, and the father just ordains him himself. And They violate Deuteronomy 12, where God says, You're not going to worship in your individual shrines. You're going to come to the tabernacle. And what God was doing, he was unifying Israel. He was bringing them around the tabernacle so that they wouldn't be tempted by these false religions. And yet he sets up his own household shrine. You know, Shiloh, at the very end, you you see the comparison between his temple and the temple at Shiloh, or the tabernacle, I should say. It was just down the road. But maybe it was too far to walk for him. It was too hard to get to church. This is pre-COVID now. He wants to worship at home too. It's amazing. What it is is he's doing religion as he wants to do it. And you see it all summed up in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is kind of like a theological version of Frank Sinatra singing my way. I mean, I, I did it my way. I'm going to do it my way. This is the nature of religion that's untethered to revealed scripture. It's a spirituality that's just driven by ourselves. Now, I, we don't have time for me to tell you every personal example I have been through about people telling me about how they do it their way. I'd love to share them. I mean, some of them are just, they'll straighten curly hair. Let me give you one. Let me just give you one. Family, wanted to baptize their child. So I explained, that's great. I'd love to talk to you and the family. And, you know, the nature of baptism is not, it's not a graduation service. Like, they finally made it great. Congratulations. Be baptized. It's an initiation service. You're baptized into something. You're baptized into uh, Christ gathered together with other people who have been baptized centered around the gospel declaring your love for God and supporting one another as we walk out this pilgrimage uh, that's explained to them and to, we always talk to the parents and, and those you know, middle teens and uh, the response was that's alright I'll just go do it at the lake myself and I said that's one way I would not say that's the biblical way, but people do it their own way. They do it what is right in their own eyes. This is incredibly dangerous. You have to see that because, you know, when we begin to brew our own religion, do things our own way, we distort the image of God. And now you see this as the violation of the second commandment. You know, what's the big deal about making a little graven image? You know, it kind of makes us feel close to God. It pictures God for us so we can help worship. The reason that the second commandment exists is because there is no created thing that can display the full glory of God. You can show power, but you miss patience. You can show love, but you miss discipline. There is nothing that can reflect the full glory of God. So he says, make no image. God is spirit. Now, I don't suspect that you're going to make graven images in your home. But we do distort the image of God in, variety, uh, in a variety of other ways. For example, some of us just tend to reject certain scriptures. We just say, well, and you've heard this, and I have a friend who said this to me. I, don't, I, I, I won't believe in a God like that. A, a God that I believe in won't do that, or won't say that. Like, but it, it says it here. It's not an interpretive issue that was between us. It was, I just don't believe that God would do it. So that's the choice they're making. Well, God says that, that's in the Word, but I, I can't believe he would do that. So there's a certain way of distorting the image of God by just rejecting scriptures. There's another way just by ignoring them. We can just ignore scriptures, right? The scripture says to give generously. We just don't. Maybe we think we can't afford to, maybe we don't want to, but we just don't. We just kind of ignore it. Or to forgive. You know, that we're called to forgive those who have offended us. We say, well, I I just can't. You know, they've they've hurt me too often. They've hurt me too much. We just kind of ignore it. Or, or, or gathering together as a church, you know while the family's in town, or you know it looks like it 's nasty weather out there, or or obeying the government or obeying leadership in the church, and well, like, yeah, I know it 's there, yeah, I believe it it 's just not working for me that 's doing things our own way, uh, so so distorting you know. Homemade religion will tend to distort the image of God, but homemade religion also makes morality a preference. If you begin to think of God in only the terms that you want to think about Him, don't be surprised if His morality matches yours. It's going to be similar. We're going to decide. I remember hearing Marla Maples, if you remember the ex wife of President Trump, she said, I believe in the Bible. You can't you can't really believe in it literally and be happy, you know. There's a certain degree of no. We're going to make the choices as to what we want to do and how we want to live, and morality then comes down to what do I think is right. We distort the image of God in our justification. We often say we. Well, I have to follow my heart on this one. I have a piece about it. I've met more. Baptist mystics. I I came from the Catholic Church, so there are plenty of mystics over there. I didn't think we had them on the other side, but we got them. I'm going to follow my heart. And the heart becomes the standard, the plumb line for what is right without thinking that our hearts are deceitful. They're wandering, they're shifty. So there's many ways that we can... This homemade religion distorts the image of God. Homemade religion can make morality a preference. Homemade religion ultimately makes us look quite hypocritical. You see it, Mike and his mother. I mean, their words are over here. Their actions are over here. They're very inconsistent. They actually look quite, quite silly. Now You may say, but, but I'm genuine, or I, I'm really sincere. And I would say, well, sincerity has never made something untrue true. A genuineness never makes something untrue true. I, I believe people are sincere. But that doesn't make something that doesn't make something true. See, when we when we try to come to God with a faith or a religion that is, that is kind of right in our own eyes and not revealed from Scripture, we're going to have a distant relationship with God because God has chosen to reveal himself in a certain way. Our, our religion, the Christian faith, is a revealed religion. It's not discovered. It's not discerned. It's not explored. It's revealed to us. God says, I seek worshipers in spirit and truth. God has lined up the way. Homemade religion always tends to use God and not worship God. Homemade religion uh, tends to see God existing for itself and not we for God. So it might be a point of repentance for us if you tend to look at what seems right to you and you always determine what's right for you apart from Scripture or apart from leadership or apart from other brothers and sisters who are weighing in life with you, and you're doing it all right here, just be very careful because to try to discern all divine truth without any outside influence, it could be a naive thing, it could be an arrogant thing, but it often ends up as a wrong thing. Uh, so that's what we see first here in Micah, that homemade religion will distort the image of God in a bad way. Uh, but, but you notice it goes right to the Levite. So look at the Levite with me. The the Levite, look back at 17.7. He says, now there was a man of Bethlehem in Judah, the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. So now we're introduced to our second character here. It goes on, the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah. I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. So he's an opportunist. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be a, to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a set of clothes and your living. And the Levite, it says, went in. So here you have Micah, an Ephraimite, who's making a religion for himself. And now you have You have this unnamed Levite who is trying to make a life for himself. So instead of serving, remember, a Levite was a man who assisted the priest. He was not a priest because he was not of the tribe of Aaron, but he assisted the priests in their worship. So he goes about his business. Now he has responsibilities at this tabernacle in Shiloh, but he's going to make a place for himself. And so he begins the journey. He providentially walks into Micah, and Micah offers him. He gives him a call to the pastorate. We'll give you money. We'll give you a parsonage. We'll give you some clothing. Be my personal priest. Seems like a good deal. He goes ahead and goes with it. And then listen to what Micah says in 13. In 13, he says, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite is a priest. Now remember, the narrator of Judges is telling us a story. We've seen how it's been almost satirical. It's meant to be almost kind of humorous. You go from the pair of Micah and his mother, and now it's Micah and this Levite. I mean, what a pair. Look at Micah for a minute. His homemade religion is quite ceremonial. It's ritualistic. It's sacramental. It's in the words, now I know that the Lord will prosper me. You see in a homemade religion, you often see this idea, if I give something, I will get something. If I perform these rituals, then God will be beholden to favor me. Now, coming out of a Roman Catholic church, that experience, I saw this all the time. The operating rule was, if you had a priest in your family you had a rabbit's foot right there. You were in great shape. If, you had a, if, if there was a priest in your family, God would be good to you. It's this idea of almost bartering with God. Now, it's not just Catholicism. It's right here in Protestantism. I mean, if I have devotions every day, the Lord's going to prosper me. I may meet the, the woman of my dreams. If I start giving to the church sacrificially, if I start engaging in ministry, If I start, if I start to, now all these devotions have a good and right place in the Christian faith. They are means of grace to us. But when we begin to see them as kind of a bartering arrangement with God, if you've ever thought that way, I mean, I have. So if you've ever thought that way, well, if I do this, then God will do this. We're distorting the graciousness of God. We're turning it into a contractual arrangement. We're, we're, we're missing the grace of God. It becomes wages earned, not grace given. God is a God of grace. He's gracious to us. It says in Romans 5, 8, that while we were dead, you know, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet dead in sin, that he gave us Christ. Or in Ephesians 2, 4, the God who is rich in mercy, it says while we were dead in transgressions and sins, He made us alive in Christ Jesus according to his grace. So it distorts the grace of God. But not only do we see Micah kind of working the homemade religion, thinking that he's going to prosper, look at the Levite for a minute. Now, the Levite should have known. The Levite should have known that he could never be a priest. The Levite should have known. Deuteronomy 12 said no to the household shrine and the household gods. The Levite knew So what it kind of shows us here, the picture of Israel, is that this idea of everyone did right what was in their own eyes wasn't just among the average Joe and Jane on the street. It was also in the clergy. It was in the Levites of all people. It shows you, in a way, the importance of of leadership in the church. You know, God has never left his people without leaders. He's given them Moses, Joshua, the judges were leaders. Gave him kings, he gave him prophets, he gave him priests. He's always given people, his people, godly leadership. And when that goes sideways, oh, it's a, bad, it's a bad story. Do you pray for the leadership of this church? You know, Jesus is the lead. He's the head of the church, right? He's the true shepherd. He's the good shepherd. But he has entrusted the role of shepherding to elders and pastors Listen to just some of the verses. Acts 20, be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. He said, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So the Spirit of God has appointed elders to serve the church. In 1 Peter 5, 1, he says to the elders, Peter does, shepherd the flock that's under your care. Or in Hebrews 13, this is a scary verse. Most people think this is scary for your sake. I think it's scary for our sake. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's the sobering part. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you how do you see the leadership of the church? When you, when you look at Micah and you see the, you know, when I was in seminary in 1993, there was this re-imaging conference. It was a big deal. It came out of the World Council of Churches, and they were going to re-image God. And so all the kind of the outbreak sessions were re-imaging God, re-imaging Jesus, or re-imaging the church, re-imaging the spirit. They were going to, they were going to, These are the leaders of the World Council of Churches, which is notoriously more of a liberal group, but they were going to re-image God. When the top goes down, then it gets gets nasty. So how do you view the leadership of the church? Do you pray for us? Uh, Do you follow the church as as we seek to lead? Or, Or do you follow when we're going in the direction you want to go? That's something you have to ask yourself. Now, this COVID has exposed all kinds of things about us. We know what's right, or we really think what's, we know what's right. I, I just want to commend those of you. You know, when, when we decided to mandate masks, uh, we did it as a plurality of elders and staff seeking counsel and wisdom, trying to follow both the scriptures as we think they were clear in Romans 13. And uh, I know that many of you did not want to do it. I know that many of you... We're probably opposed to it on a number of levels, but you did do it. And I thank you for that. I want to commend you for that. I think we have more of those things coming down the road. I think we're going to have these difficult, ethical leadership decisions ahead of us. More than we have in the first 22 years of ministry here. And and, and we're going to need to be together on this. And, And you need to pray for us. You know, Paul tells Timothy in the pastoral epistles, he says, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. We need your prayers to lead well. We are men who understand our own fallibility. But we we need to walk together in these days as they become increasingly um, filled with vitriol and division and polarization. Uh, So this is, we don't want to move down. We are going to just do what is right in our own eye. Okay, and then and then thirdly, we run into the Danites. Look with me at chapter 18, verse 1. He says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Now this is interesting here, because it seems like the tribe of Dan, they're homeless. What's going on? Well, we know in Joshua 19, they were given a land. God gave them a land. And we know that in Joshua, in Judges 1, 24, they couldn't take the land. They were fighting the Amorites, and the Amorites pushed them up into the hill country. They had no fertile valley to move to. And so they began to look for a different land. This is why I think these stories are probably at the beginning of the book of Judges. The reason I say that is because they were already on the move. Do you remember... Samson when Samson said there was no godly woman among the tribe why they were gone they had already left going to Laish up in the hill country taking that land it also reminds us did you notice the name of the levite he was finally named at the end of chapter 18 he was Jonathan son of a grandson of Moses of Moses now some translations kind of work Manasseh, but the, most scholars think it's Moses. Within two generations, so you have Moses, you have Joshua, and then you have the period of the judges. So this is probably very early in the period of the judges. It does remind you, God doesn't have grandchildren. Here, the grandson of Moses is the chief priest in this temple of Dan. So it's an interesting story. They're doing it their way. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. They're not going to take the land allotted to them. They're going to go up and get something easier. That's the whole story. They send those five spies, again, dripping with irony here, trying to take off of Joshua sending spies. Now Dan's going to send their own spies to find a land that's good for them. God already did that but now they're going to do it their own way. And so they send these spies up, and they run providentially into Micah and his Levite priest. They ask for a blessing. They ask, will God give us success? Sure he will. They go up, they find Laish, and this is an unsuspecting town, vulnerable, rich, fertile ground. They come back, they tell the leaders of Dan, Dan sends 600 warriors up there, armed for battle. They go up, they pass by Micah's place, they see... Of course, the Levite, they say, hey, come with us. It'd be better to be a priest of a tribe than a priest of a family. This guy's an opportunist. We saw that at the beginning, the Levite. So he goes, bigger bigger position, bigger pay. This is like a country pastor, now getting a megachurch spot in a big city. So he goes with the tribe. They go up. Now Micah comes out. He, he gets wind of it. He goes out there and chases him down. He says, hey, look what he says in 24. It's borderline pathetic. He says, and he said, you take my gods that I've made and the priests and go away and whatever I have left. I mean, it's almost like it should be said like in a whiny voice. You take my gods that I made. You know, do you see the irony there? They've got 600 warriors. He doesn't. He walks away. They go up. They take the town of Laish. They kill the people. They burn it down. They build it and they name it Dan. That's a shocker they name it Dan, and then they live there. What the narrator wants us to see is they're no different than Micah. They're all the same. They're all doing what's right in their eyes. This homemade religion, kind of a, a culture that has gone amok. It, you, you see that, that our, our living, you know, according to what's right in our eyes, it doesn't stay with ourselves. It infects and bleeds. You, you see it go from Micah, all the way from a person to a tribe. It doesn't remain. You know, when we begin to move with a religion, a faith that is is borderline counterfeit, or we're just ignoring or coming against the word or not being concerned with what the word says, it's going to affect others, not just ourselves. But not just that. This false religion, it leaves you empty. Listen to Micah. What do I have left? He is sad to lose the gods that he had to make. I mean, when we put our hope and our trust in things, whether it's beauty, you're going to age. If it's health, you're going to get sick. If it's a position, it's going to be phased out. There is nothing on this green earth that can be good enough, secure enough, permanent enough that would satisfy you. So we're always looking to rid our lives of those things that we're hooking our wagon to. But, but, but worse, this kind of homemade religion will be judged. You know, the tribe of Dan, they're the only tribe not mentioned around the throne of God in Romans chapter 7, verses 5 to 8. It's the only tribe. They walked off the pages of Scripture. They walked right out the door. They weren't saved. They were lost forever. This type of homemade religion has one characteristic that I want you to hear. There is no repentance in these chapters. You won't find any repentance. Nobody's seeking God. Nobody's crying out. Nobody's calling out in distress. There's no repentance. Why is there no repentance? Because they're doing what they think's right. You don't repent over stuff that you think what you're doing is right. You don't repent over it. You think, well, it's the right thing for me to do. But how do you know if you're not tethered to other souls, other brothers and sisters who are helping discern, is this right or wrong? Nobody can operate in a vacuum here. Nobody can operate in a vacuum in determining right and wrong. We have to do it as a a church, collectively, together. But there's no repentance. Let this be a marker for each one of us. To the degree that you practice self-initiated repentance. Now, sometimes you're going to hear something out of the pulpit, a friend, a brother, or sister is going to say something to you. You're going to read the word. You're going to hear something on the radio. It's going to spark conviction of sin, and you're going to be led to repentance. That's right and appropriate. Repent. But oftentimes, it should just come by the Spirit of God as you review your life, if you're taking the time to consider your life. How am I living with God? How am I living with my spouse or my close friends? How am I living with my church family? How am I living with my community and those with whom I work? And also, you begin thinking through, that should lead to repentance. Repentance is a mark, ongoing repentance is a mark of a faith-filled Christian appealing to God. You don't see it here. So here we come to the end of 17 and 18 and we see through these three sets of characters that it's just homemade religion. It's doing what was right in our own eyes. We need to look at that in our own life because what it reveals to us is we need help, right? I mean, the one phrase I didn't pick up on that's repeated twice is, and there was no king in Israel. There was no king. Now, in a way, again, we have more irony, because there was a king. You might say, well, there couldn't be a king because we're in the period of judges. But there was always a king. God is our king. God is the one who gives himself to us by scripture and through his spirit and evidenced and enjoyed among the people. God is our king. But they're saying we have no king because they had no God. They had gone their own way. They had done what is right in their own eyes and not followed as God had directed. But what it does remind us is we do need a king. We do need a king to come because we can't beat ourselves. We've seen the cycle over and over. We rebel, right? We cry out. He rescues. We rejoice. And then we rebel. Every one of us has been in the cycle as we go through all these chapters of Judges. We need a king to come. Now he's going to bring kings. God's going to raise up Saul and he's going to raise up David and Solomon and the rest of them. David was a high watermark, no doubt about it. But David wasn't the king we need. And so again, Judges is getting us to this. We need a king. We need a king to come among us. Now God is a king. But thankfully he has sent a king for us. For us to experience revival, for us to be renewed, for us to somehow break that cycle, we need to be born from above. This is the call to Christian faith. We need to be born again. And it comes through this coming king. Is it a surprise to you that when Jesus was born, the the wise men said, we are looking for one who is born king. He didn't ascend to the throne. He wasn't coronated king. He was born to be king. And is it a surprise to us that on his cross, the king of the Jews, he died as a king, and he rose to say, that's the king we need. There was no king in Israel, but there was a king that was coming to save. The only way out of this cycle of every man and every woman does that which is right in his own eyes, we need. Not just for the non-Christian. Non- if you're here, you're not a Christian, you've never repented of your sins and placed the faith your faith in Christ as one who can save you from your sins and reconcile you to God. That is how we become Christians. But for the Christians here, friends, we still need to be renewed. The psalmist in 85 says, revive my heart. Revive it. Revivification. Give me new life. That's what we want to ask from Christ the King. So let's take a moment and just let this be a time of maybe pensive reflection. I don't want it to be heavy on you I I want it to kind of illuminate areas that perhaps we are just moving about as what seems right in our own eyes let's repent and I'll pray for us in just a moment